Good morning. And for those that are joining us online, so welcome. Hope you sense the presence of our Lord as we're gathering together uh, to worship him in spirit and in truth, as the scriptures would put it. This morning, what I would love to do now is to have us turn in our Bibles to Psalm 100. As you're turning to Psalm 100, what will immediately stand out is that there is a distinctive about this psalm, a uniqueness about this psalm, in that this is the one that has the superscription attached to it that reads, a psalm for giving thanks. And so what we're going to be doing, and this is more of a meditation um, today, is to reflect upon simply five verses that are found here. There's a richness to the psalm. In fact, part of the Scottish Presbyterian tradition is that uh, this psalm is read uh, at a time in which thanks is being given to God, whether it be at a meal or at some other occasion. And so perhaps you might even find this to be appropriate in some cases uh, for uh, reading this passage prior to the Thanksgiving meal that comes our way this week. So it's a psalm for giving thanks, a Psalm 100. And the psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So we're going to be exploring now these five verses together, and we're going to be asking God in a very distinctive way to use these verses to minister in the coming days as we're preparing our hearts and our minds for, for thanksgiving. We're looking to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, what we want to do is to seek you, to learn from you, to be guided from you, guided by you, as we venture a little further into the weeks that will now lead beyond Thanksgiving into Advent. There seems to be a busyness, an uptick in our schedules in these kinds of days. For some, there's going to be added responsibilities because there might be family members coming in from out of the area, maybe out of state, perhaps even from overseas. The flip side is that there might be some that are experiencing an emptiness around the table. One who had been there in a prior year is no longer there. What we want, Father, is for your grace to be sufficient, 
We want a sense of your presence. In fact, fill that empty chair with your presence even now. Preparing, preparing that heart, Father, what's coming. We're asking for an extraordinary blessing to be coming upon uh, the ones in a prior service, the ones in this service, the ones watching currently online, the ones that will be watching in the days to come. And that we take these five verses, Father, and we turn them into an action plan for the way in which we can live life with thankful hearts for who you are, what you've done in sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Because you've given us access to you through him. So, Father, now these moments are important, and this is the time where we open the word. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, would you join me in turning back to, heading back to Jerusalem? And as we make our way to Jerusalem, what we're going to do now is to notice what is before us. It's the East Gate. Now, the East Gate is a distinctive gate to the various gates. It's also known in the Bible as the Beautiful Gate. It's been known in history as the Golden Gate due to Jerome's New Testament translation. It's an error, frankly, from the Greek to the Latin. But what's interesting about this gate, which we've noted in prior times, is that, well, it was sealed up by the Muslims for hundreds of years. Why? Well, the objective was to present the Jew prevent the Jewish Messiah from returning. Evidently, Ezekiel 44, verses 1 through 3, was known by one or a few of them, and they decided that this was the approach to take to keep a Messiah from entering. Well, good luck with that one. <laughs> you see, it's reserved for the Messiah's future entrance, and, well, thousands of graves, Jewish graves, on the slopes face it with the hope that, well, that they're going to be the first ones to be resurrected upon the Messiah's arrival. But to prevent his arrival, the Muslims in 1541, they established a cemetery to stop his path to the gate and sealed it to be certain. I remember standing in a distance as my tour guide standing next to me. His name was Jacob, and Jacob and I were in conversation at that point, and we were pondering the sealing of that gate it might look impenetrable to the eyes of the average person, but not to the eyes of God. God has a way of creating avenues through locked gates. Psalm 100 is the avenue by which what God has done is that he has created an avenue through any locked gate that there might be. And what I want to do with you in these moments together is to draw out three significant insights from this classic Thanksgiving psalm, a psalm that is read in various geographic and 
ethnic sections and see what we can do to apply it to our own walk with the Lord. And the first comes out of verse 1 and verse 2, that is, you and I, as we prepare our hearts to offer, well, thanksgiving to our Lord. I want to begin here by noting with you the appeal God makes to us in verses 1 and 2. Because as you and I begin to explore uh, these verses, what you begin with is this statement. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. But what I want to begin with is this phrase, make a joyful noise. This is an appeal. This is a summons. This is an invitation that God is giving to you and to me. And what immediately captures my attention from the original language is that the phrase joyful noise in the Hebrew carries with the idea of a blast, a trumpet blast, that would be delivered at the time in which a king, a monarch, had come into the area and now, as the trumpet creates this blast of sound, the people rise in homage to the one who has reigned over them. That's the significance of that one word, noise. It has less to do with my lack of ability to sing, more to do with the trumpet blast that comes for the one that's called to stand out of respect for the one who has entered into our presence. And it's not merely a blast, it's a joyful blast, because you and I are aware of the fact that this one, the joy of the Lord is our strength, is the one who comes now to strengthen our hearts, no matter what it is that you and I might be experiencing at this point of time in our lives. So now, you've grabbed hold of that initial statement for the person who responds with a sense of uh, adoration to the trumpet blast there's a shout that would be attached to that so make a joyful noise and notice now to whom this joyful noise is delivered it does not read G-O-D at this point does it no What's interesting is that this is the Yahweh covenantal name for our sovereign one. L-O-R-D, Yahweh, Jehovah. And so he is using now the Jewish name, the relational covenantal name for the sovereign one. And now what he's doing is he's encouraging one and all to enter into his presence. And you do that with a thankful spirit. And today what we can do is to say, I can enter into his presence because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You can imagine then the pilgrimages as people were making their way to Jerusalem 
and there would be various gates by which they would enter. What's interesting about the various gates in Jerusalem is that there is typically a tower right next to the gate. Because, you see, when those that were about to or thought that they might uh, find a way to invade the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, find out that there were guards positioned up in the towers inspecting the walls and making sure that the gates were secure and that those that were to come were bringing offerings to the one who deserves our, our thanks. The gates were protected. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So now what he is doing is he is using the relational name for the sovereign one, Lord, but he is talking globally, not nationally. This is missions. This is a missions psalm. And now what he's saying is that Jew and Gentile alike are being invited based upon their faith in the Messiah, for them the Messiah who was to come, for us the Messiah who came, all converging, of course, at the cross of Jesus Christ, and to be able to say that you and I now, Jew or Gentile, have heard the blast, heard the sound, delivered the shout. We've got access and this is an international statement. All the earth is global. It's missions. It was the 1700s, and there was this rather small, slight man in England. He's a cobbler by trade. Looking at excerpts from his biography at this moment. Well, he, he kept a map of the world on a wall of his workshop so that he could pray for the nations of the world. And Psalm 100, verse 1, was stated just below the map. He was burdened. He wanted to be able to reach the world with the gospel. But when he shared his burden at a meeting of pastors, he was told by one of the uh, seniors, um, young man, sit down when God wants to convert the unbelievers. He will do it without your help. But William Carey didn't let the fire of his, of his enthusiasm be dampened by that response. And so he left the shores of England for India, where he involved himself in pioneer missionary work, doing extraordinary things with Psalm 100 verse 1 imprinted, not merely upon the bottom of that map, but printed, imprinted upon his heart, you see. So there's your verse 1. Make a joyful noise. It's a blast. It's the sound of the trumpet to the Lord rather than merely G-O-D, which is the generic name for the sovereign one, L-O-R-D, which is the covenantal relational name for him. And relationship with God is based upon entering into relationship due to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
But notice this is all the earth, not just simply all of Jerusalem, nor all of Israel. It's all the earth, Jew and Gentile alike. You're up to verse 2. Notice then you move from the S of shall to the S of serve, from 1 to 2. Serve the Lord, and reiterates now, it's the Lord, and you're to do it, and I'm to do it with gladness. And furthermore, to phrase it slightly differently, come into his presence. Now, for the average Jewish individual at the time in which the writings were being offered, to come into his presence was something of high significance. You would come into the courts, of course. But to come into that Holy of Holies? No. That would be reserved for the high priest on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And so you would have this awe at the whole idea of entering into his presence. We seem to have lost globally this sense of awe. And it's critically important that with a, a joyful spirit we introduce this idea of wonder and a sense of awe into this whole matter of coming into the, coming into the presence of the Lord. And you do it in a way that moves, moves the heart. It's thanksgiving. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite writers, a few thoughts on thanksgiving as it relates to gratitude. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. Well put. And then again, I would maintain that thanks is the highest form of thought. And that gratitude is joy doubled by wonder. And when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. G.K. Chesterton. This man can say a lot with a little, which is the mark of wisdom. Serve the Lord then with gladness and come into his presence. But now you and I have that sense of coming into his presence. This is awe and awesome woven in together. And you do it with a song. You move from the shout through service to song. David Livingston was able to do that. He was having a tough day. It was 1856. He was facing life-death matters. Alone in his tent, he opened up his Bible, began to read the promise that he had staked his life upon, and then penned these words in his diary, January 14, 1856 evening. Felt incredible turmoil of spirit at the idea of having all my plans for welfare in this region of Africa knocked on the head by tomorrow, my life is in danger. But Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth, so therefore go and teach all the nations. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. 
And then he adds this. This is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor so that there's really no, no reason for fear. I will not cross furtively tonight, so I intend it, no. I shall take observations for latitude, longitude tonight, though they may be the last. Yet I feel quiet and calm now. And I thank the Lord. When you have that sense of thankfulness of spirit, there's a calm. There's a sense of his presence. Why? Because you have entered into his presence. And you've done it exclusively based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's your appeal. It's one and two wrapped together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's the blast, the shout that accompanies the blast. All the earth, it's global, it's international, it's both Jew and Gentile alike. You move from the S of shout to the S of serve. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come to his presence with singing. You got a song. You got a song that needs, that needs to be heard. You've got a song, you see, and you're so thankful for who God is and for, and for what God has done. But now out of this then, what you and I do is we move from the appeal that God makes to us in verses 1 and 2 to second of all, what we'll call this morning the challenge that God issues to us in verse 3. And what captures my attention, maybe it captures your attention as well, is that it begins with the idea of knowing God. And those that have read J.I. Packer can find that his thoughts seem to be wrapped up in what is found here in just one verse, verse 3, where the psalmist now pens, Know, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. And we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now notice how this begins. It's the word no, the same word that was used in the Hebrew to describe how in the sense of intimacy, Adam knew Eve. There is this intimate relational dynamic that is being described here. It involves more than knowing about this sovereign one. It involves knowing the sovereign one. And if you live among people that are extraordinarily religious and know a lot about God, you got to take it one step forward. But do you know God? Because what he has now done is that he has taken L-O-R-D, the relational name for the Sovereign One. And in that same verse began with know, which is a relational form, an experiential form of knowing, and wrapped it together in succinct form. I can almost imagine J.I. Pack, who's now with the Lord, nodding his head in approval. 
who would write in his book, Knowing God. Knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. And then again, to know that nothing happens in this world, God's world, apart from God's will, might frighten the unbeliever, but it stabilizes the Christian. Now, as you make your way towards that Thanksgiving meal, to know that nothing happens in this world apart from God's will, whether it be theologically speaking, his permissive will or his directive will. Yeah, this can frighten the unbeliever who begins to grapple with the realities of this. But what it does for the one who is a follower of Jesus Christ is that it anchors you, stabilizes you, gives you a sense of security in a world that seems to produce nothing but a sense of insecurity. For as Packer also put it, once you become aware that the main business that you are here is to know God, well, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. Oh, that is so good. Once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Now notice how he uses this word know in verse 3 and develops from verse 3 alone three aspects tied to this idea of knowing. That number one, know that the Lord, he is God. Number two, it's as if to say, know that it is he who made us. And number three, to say in essence, to know that we are his. So know that the Lord, he is God, which was a problem for religious Israel at a time in which Elijah lived. Because though they were extraordinarily religious, they were religious unbelievers by and large. There was a king named Ahab who sent to all the people of Israel and gathered these false prophets at Mount Carmel. So Elijah came near to all these people and said, well, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? It was a divided nation. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And interestingly, 1 Kings 18 informs us that the people did not answer him a word, which is very typical when you're being confronted with the reality of truth about God. Well, Elijah encouraged the false prophets to do their thing, perform to their heart's content, but their false gods could not deliver in this drought time period. Then it was Elijah's turn. He let them go first, you see. So they were completely exposed to their inabilities to be able to produce. But then I love what comes of the following verses. 
Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh Lord, and it's L-O-R-D capitalized, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, now he's informing the people of their heritage. Let it be known, favorite word now, let it be known this day that you are God. You are God in Israel, and I am your servant. He has now taken the yeses, and he's begun to unfold them of verse 1. I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back in the fire of the Lord felt it and fell and consumed the burnt offerings. The wood, the stones, the dust licked up the water that was in the trench. The response, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And the psalmist of verse 3 begins, know that the Lord he is God. Isn't this good? So now, of the aspects of knowing the sovereign one, the first of verse 3 is to know that he is God. The second is that it is he who made us. So he is the creator and the sustainer of our lives. They were not here by accident, but rather by appointment. And thirdly, that we are his, he is owner, therefore we are managers of our lives, which is an extraordinary idea as we exert a pro-life mentality in a secularized culture. We are his, he is owner, we are managers, he's creator. So to reiterate, but now bring in a metaphor that would have been very, very understandable to the Jewish community. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Douglas Macmillan, of a prior generation, was an extraordinary expositor in Great Britain. Great Britain, but Scotland in particular, Scotland is known for their great expositors, whether it was Alexander McLaren or in today's circles, Alistair Begg. But Douglas Macmillan of Scotland pens these thoughts in his work on Psalm 23. I remember one day as a shepherd, almost three years after I had left shepherding to go to study to become a pastor, at the university, that I was back home for summer holidays and I was working with my brother. We were looking at lambs in one sheep pen which had been separated from their mothers in another pen. And I was standing with my hands just dangling idly by my side, admiring some of the lambs, despairing of others. And suddenly, suddenly I felt a sheep's nose nuzzling into my hand. I looked down and there was a sheep almost five years old a sheep that for six months I had looked after as a lamb, taking it home to the farm, feeding it with a bottle every so often, and although it went back to the hill after six months, that sheep would always come to me. Uh, the other sheep, 
They knew their shepherd, but they would not come as close as that to him, but this one would. The sheep had not seen me for almost three years. The sheep, she was in the hills. She lived on a part of the hill that was almost three miles from the farm. Now, I was standing with my brother. I had been away, like I said, for an extended period of time. My brother, he had been the shepherd for three years. Yet I looked around, and here she was, and I was thrilled. Why? Because she knew me. She was letting me know that she knew me. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people. And the sheep, there's your metaphor, of his pasture. There's your challenge. The appeal was in verses 1 and 2. The challenge is in verse 3. But thirdly, what I want you to be able to spot now with me is the reasons God gives to us in verses 4 and 5. Because he's going to lead you to the reasons for giving thanks. But he starts off with this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. So you're with me on our tour of Jerusalem, and we're spotting the various gates. Well, here's another gate to look at. This is the Zion Gate. And the Zion Gate's a battle-scarred gate, southwest corner of the old city on Mount Zion, also known as the prophet David's Gate in the eyes of the Arab community who have called it such. Because one passes through it to David's tomb on Mount Zion. It's referred to also as the gate to the Jewish quarter. And so now what we find here with this particular gate is that it leads to the one who was known as King David who would point to the one who was the ultimate Davidic king you and I know as Jesus Christ. So you look around the outset of Jerusalem, and perhaps we walk together and we look at the various gates here, and we ponder this one. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. This is why it's plural for the number of various gates that are gathered around, including the Jaffa Gate and so on. His courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And now the reasons. You say, well, Gary, give me some whys. Here they come. For the Lord is good. It doesn't mean that life feels good. It doesn't mean that everything you've experienced is good. What it means is the Lord is good. Another thought, another reason. His steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed here, 
endures, not temporarily, but forever. And another thought, his faithfulness to all generations. Chronologically, generationally. Jim Daly writes, if you're going through a difficult time this Thanksgiving season, ponder this. It was 1863 and Abraham Lincoln was issuing a proclamation that called the nation to a day, a day of thanksgiving. At the time, neither Lincoln nor the American people, so it appeared, had much to be thankful for. For you see, Lincoln and his wife, Mary, were mourning the loss of their 11-year-old son, Willie, who had died recently. And the country, furthermore, was embroiled in what you and I know as the Civil War, took thousands of lives. Yet in the midst of loss, Lincoln called for a national day of thanksgiving and made this bold proclamation to the American people, quote, in the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, our country has been filled with blessings which are so constantly enjoyed that we're prone to forget the source from which they come. So said Lincoln in 1863. So you've been sick? Like Lincoln, you lost a loved one? Maybe there's financial problems? You're anticipating that empty chair that once was filled with someone special? He writes, it's not easy to be thankful when life seems dark, but you enter into his gates with thanksgiving and open your heart for God's touch. For as one wrote, it is one thing to be grateful. It's another thing to give thanks. Gratitude is what you feel. Thanksgiving is what you do. And when you pull these thoughts together, you've got Psalm 100 unfolding for you as the meal is about to be eaten. Let's stand together. And Father, we're thanking you. We've got a rich heritage of Thanksgiving in this nation. But what we have to do is to seize the understanding of the value of the gates being opened. That people from all angles of north, south, east, west were converging in their pilgrimages upon Jerusalem. Making their way perhaps into the outer courts. But pondering the significance that only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. It was an exclusive matter. But now, Father, what we find is that what Jesus Christ has done in dying for our sins in our place is that he allows us to have access to you through his work. And as a result now, Father, we come before you with thanksgiving, offering you all praise, all glory, and allow for five verses from this extraordinary psalm to be imprinted upon our hearts. 
We give you all the praise. All of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.